Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 91st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows that you know that the best margins in the game aren't behind the vendor table. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic Singles and Sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at mtgcritic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at wizardbumpin, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody, and good evening, James. Glad to be here for episode 91. Uh, I have some interesting conversation topics and some always valuable information for all of you. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? This week, we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers, where James and I will review the cards that have seen the largest increases in price this week. Segment two, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Segment two is going to be our me- our metagame week in review. We are going to look at the Star City Modern Open from Cincinnati this past weekend. Segment three will be our cards to watch, where James and I will discuss the cards that we think have a possibility of rising in price. And segment four, our topic of the week, we have a couple things to hit on, so stay tuned for our grab bag. Let's start off segment one, our top movers, with a uh, treasure map from Ixalan. Jumped from 250 to 350, so not really a major percentage gain, only about 40%. But this is a card, uh, looks like Saffron Olive featured it recently on his channel, uh, and people kind of took notice. And I, it's also worth talking about because I, I similarly keyed in on this card during spoiler season as something that seemed like it might be good. So, you know, it kind of set off my... Uh, my spider senses and then he's playing with it and thinking it's interesting too so uh, it's possible we are looking at what could be kind of a, an important standard rare here in the near future it has all the hallmarks of, of like a classic control card that needs breathing room in a format where aggro can be held back long enough to really get the value out of it i mean it's a it's a great little value engine um and we flagged it in the discussions with uh, todd stevens when we were talking about stuff that might be valuable and casual in edh circles down the road um, if it, you know, this isn't a huge spike. This is just minor movement that shows some market, uh, interest. I'd be much more excited if I saw a top eight, a standard tournament. Right. Same, same. So this is not like, a not our normal type of, of price movement, but it does give us kind of an opportunity to see something possibly coming down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So next on the list is Kindred Dominance. This is a uh, sorcery out of the latest Commander 2017 product, moving from $2 to $3. That's a dollar gain or 50%. Again, the kind of thing you can't really make money on yet. Um, but I think in that 2 to $3 range, this is still a, a pretty solid card. It's already in 690 decks or so on EDHrec.com, uh, and... And this is the um, seven mana spell that choose you choose a creature type, destroy all creatures that aren't of the chosen type. So it's basically like crux of fate for everything but dragons. Um, and, you know, there's going to be tribal decks that are going to want that for a while down the road. Um, there are many sweeper options, but everybody runs multiple sweepers in most EDH decks these days. Um, you need to hold down uh, all the craziness that can load up on the board. 
And so I think this is one of these cards that could end up being something if you get in in the two to three dollar range, you might buy list out in the four to six dollar range in the next 18 months or so. Um, not super exciting, but the kind of thing that can lead to solid returns. Oh, sure. The kindred, the whole kindred cycle is very interesting. Um, and I, I talked about one of them a little while ago as being a card worth keeping your eye on because I thought it was um, a possibly powerful pickup. I don't remember which one. I don't have it up in front of me. But that, that whole cycle, other the black and red ones are my least favorite, but they're all interesting. So next on the list? Next on the list is Ivory Tower from Antiquities. It jumped from 450 to 750, so still not a, not quite 100% gain, but you know, one in a long string of cards in that kind of Antiquities, people buying out cards type of nonsense that you don't really need to care about, but you should at least be semi-aware of it's happening. I mean, you can make all sorts of crazy, broken, old, casual decks um, with cards like Ivory Tower and Black Vice. You just have to be playing with people that you don't care whether they like you. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, and I want to be clear again that I don't, I think that there's certainly a market for these cards and a lot of people do well with them, but um, it just really have to caution everybody against thinking they're just going to pick these up and uh, make a ton of money flipping them on TCG player. You kind of need to know your outs before you get into this stuff and or have ins into the circle. I think the key with this particular spec that we've touched on a few times already is that it's going to be a slow bleed back out. If you picked up you know, 20 ivory towers near mint or SP or something, you're going to be selling those for years. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Because the demand profile is just not there. If you run a store and you've got a heavy old school presence or something, then your prospects are much better. Um, or if you're part of an old school play group or something and you get a chance to trade out for value, um, those are all solid scenarios. But just as like a rando spec to pick, you've got better priorities. Yep, I agree completely. Uh, what do you got next for us? So Merfolk Branchwalker. This is the Explorer Merfolk. Uh, uncommon from Ixalan. Moving, the foil's moving from $4 to nine fifty on the back of back-to-back top eights for blue-green Merfolk in the SOG Modern Opens. Um, I'm just loving um, all the people eating their tongues, or at least they should be, that have been disparaging Merfolk for years while it continuously puts up top eights in meta after meta after meta. I mean, what uh, are that is me. Cut? That is <laughs> that is me. And I still think the deck is bad and not that good. I think it just gets lucky every couple weekends. That's you get ridiculous. one guy. Who, it's really linear. You get one guy who has a decent draw every now and then, and you can get there. I, I don't think you can. I, I, I agree that it's linear, but I don't think you can make the claim that it's bad unless you're also claiming that Burn is a bad deck. I mean, the way I see these decks is they are the clocks of the format, right? And one of the one of the arguments that you can make against any aggro deck you choose to table is why aren't you playing Burn? So you you have to make sure that there are you know post sideboard and meta advantages to not playing Burn if you're just trying to win. Like if if you don't care what deck you play and you're just trying to win tournaments and you think Burn is well-positioned, and you still choose this other aggro deck, then you have to have good reasons. But the the Merfolk deck is looking sleeker, uh, more streamlined, a little lower casting cost. You're seeing like less of the uh, Master of Waves just as it's getting a reprint. I think the blue-green ones are running like an average of one copy as opposed to like the three or four that some Merfolk decks were running in the past. Um, and all of that seems to seems to lead to a more consistent turn two, turn three threat presentation, right? So, how can you not be impressed with a deck that comes out of no a, a re retread of a deck where you had a, a a fairly streamlined mono color aggro deck, adds a second color, and then still top eights two weekends in a row in major tournaments? That doesn't impress you. 
Mm, I guess I mean it's merfolk, and I'm I'm Biased. never going to be that impressed against <laughs> impressed with it. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess if the deck is fine, like any other linear deck, but you know, I guess maybe it's it's nothing more than a linear deck, and like don't think that there's some other magical element to it that uh it, it you know that sets it apart from those other strategies it's just it's burned with blue cards right like so i i, I mean i mostly i i agree that i'm i mean i'm never going to play the deck i these are not the kind of decks that i want to invest money into and play over a long period of time i certainly the matches of modern that i think most of us enjoy are the ones that are highly interactive where there's interplay back and forth um and this isn't the deck that uh gets me uh, the most excited in terms of having a bunch of different ways it could play out. Um, certainly plays much differently than you know the Eldrazi Death and Taxes that I'm playing these days. These days, which re- punishes me when I suck and rewards me for good play, um, which is just the way I like it. Well, I guess I can't say that Merfolk is always going to be unplayable and bad. Just I don't know. I don't think it's all that interesting. Whatever. Let's move on. Next <laughs> up is Hidden Stockpile from Aether Revolt. We're looking at the foil copies here. Uh, bounce from $1.25 to like 3 bucks. Uh, very Sam Black type of card. There's some interest in Standard. Also probably a couple fans in EDH because uh, it's a tight little value engine. So uh, probably not going to see this keep moving too much. I don't think there's going to be enough of demand for it, even if it breaks out in Standard. But uh, still, still be worth knowing about. The foils could hit 10 if it breaks out of the pro tour but i mean that's <laughs> that's a stretch um it's possible right. i mean there is a deck in standard the question is whether it can really challenge part of the you know the top three of uh burn uh teamer energy and blue black control um but we'll see what the pros bring to the table in a couple of weeks yep uh yeah what do you got for us uh kaho minimo historian from uh saviors of kamigawa Foils moving from ten dollars to twenty five. I have no idea what's going on with that card. I mean, I assume there's just no inventory. I, I can't think of anything I've ever seen this played in. Can you? No, no. Just one person bought a copy, and this is a human wizard for four. It's a two two. When it comes into play, search your library for up to three instant cards and remove them from the game. Then shuffle your library. You pay X and tap. You may play a card with converted mana cost X removed from the game. I mean, it seems okay in Commander. Is it an undervalued card? Uh, I mean, the no. <laughs> I'm gonna just go with no. I I don't know. I mean, it's the Kamigawa foil, right? Like one person buys. There's no foil, there's no copies left, so one person yeah. buys a foil and the price moves. Yeah, I Whatever. think I think if you're sitting on it and not playing it, ditch it for sure. Yeah, if you can even find somebody that wants it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Good luck. Uh, next is Sunbird's Invocation from Ixalan. Um, we're seeing this show up, one, because it's a cool card and it does cool things, right? Uh, two, we have seen it show up in Standard. Um, somebody was playing a white-red deck to some level of success. It was Approach of the Sun in this card um, because what happens is if Sunbird's Invocation is in play and you cast Approach, uh, you get to the, the approach that you cast searches for itself, basically. Um, so it's a cool little two card combo. I don't see how it's meaningfully different than like uh, just casting two approaches, right? Like it's the same general concept, but I suppose it gives you a way to get more hits off of your combo type of thing. So I'm not that expecting- happens faster. It's an instant two card combo to win. Um, yeah. Because the first sun, approach of the second sun puts the other one 
within striking distance of getting hit by the um, uh, uh, by Sunbird's invocation. Um, so it's a speedier kill than in the like blue white versions we saw in the springtime. Yeah. Um, and Jim, Jim Casale has also mentioned this twice on Cartel, um, that he thinks the card's undervalued for EDH. It hasn't really shown up in a ton of decks over there, but I can I can buy into the thesis that if you're playing an EDH deck that can sit around for long enough to really get this rolling, it's the kind of card that can take over games and that a lot of players aren't going to really fully value until they see it in action. Oh, sure. I mean, it's definitely useful in EDH, no question there. Uh, you know, I'm not inclined to tell you that I mean, you're talking about speeding up a standard deck by adding a six mon enchantment. So let's just keep that in mind. Or hey, uh, <laughs> that was playing seven mana sorceries, mind you. Right, right. So it's like, oh, instead of a six mon, a seven mana sorcery, we have a six mon enchantment. Whatever. But it is cool in EDH for sure. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, I mean, it fo- what is it? We say it was fifteen dollar foils. Like I'm not really, I don't really care at that price point. But it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it's too late now, I suppose. But I and I would sell them if I could grab them. Yeah, it's somebody else's solid call at five, like Jim's, um, and at fifteen you may as well exit. That's that's such a quick ten bucks if you can get out over fifteen. And if it falls flat in its face in standard, it's going to take a while to take off an EDH. So you probably get to see those foils float back down into maybe not five again, but in the probably seven to ten dollar range anyway in the next few months. And in and around Christmas, remember there are tons of deals coming your way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, what's next? So the other piece of the blue-green merfolk puzzle in modern is Kumena's Speaker. Um, uh, I, I want to say, is Branch Walker the rare and uh, this one? It's two uncommons. Oh, they're both uncommons. Yeah. Right. So this one's only moved to $8 um, instead of nine fifty, roughly similar. Um, also, uh, looks like it may settle in as a four of in merfolk and modern, so justifies the jump. And, you know, it's tough for... Uh, foil uncommons to hold um, over 10 bucks if they see a reprint but these two cards are probably safe for a while um, and you know there is going to be more inventory entering the market over the next three months so they they will see some pressure from that um, and I think that if you were smart enough to get in early you can go ahead and flip and move on to something else and then maybe look for another entry point um, or just be happy and move on for sure for sure I think if you got them sell them and uh, you know be happy it worked out well and get on with your life Yep. Next. Uh, next is Marionette Master from Kaladesh. This is a um, the foils move from a dollar fifty to four. This is involved in some standard combo where you blow people out with like making a bunch of treasure and then sacrificing them and killing people. Blah blah blah. It's like a standard combo piece. We haven't really seen any real results out of it, um, so which is why the price doesn't move that much. I mean, you might be seeing some play in EDH too. Um, you know, you can probably set up an instant kill with this essentially or at least deal a ton of damage so it's interesting people are just trying to pick up their foils ahead of the deck being good i think uh you know someone who was thinking about playing the deck goes out and buys a dollar fifty foils that are cheap because they might want it type of thing this card's also going to make a bunch of fit into a bunch of combos and edh that haven't even been fully explored yet down the road because it has that instant kill potential um so uh, not something that I, I would make a high priority, um, but I do think the deck is fun and standard, and if I was playing standard right now, I'd probably be playing with this. Yeah, it is nifty for sure, uh, but you know, again, it's a very expensive card, so it's kind of like, uh, can't really see too much on the horizon for it. All right, so next up on the list, we have a little polite clap. Everybody that bought <laughs> Foil Crypt Gas, give give Travis a pat on the back. Um, you know, going from $8 to 22 we'll see if that holds 
Travis said so is the the note in our notes <laughs> column here. Um, this is a good this is a good platform though from which to jump off and discuss you know what it means when somebody on a on a podcast or in an article makes a pick um, and how it affects the market and how it doesn't. Um, there's zero zero denying that we can influence some of you to go buy a card. Um, either because you agree with us or just because you like to be told what to do and are willing to take the risk. Um, but it's important to remember that the market almost always self-corrects. So if we tell you to go buy something silly where the thesis doesn't hold together, either because the demand profile's not there or because the supply isn't low enough for the card to be able to sustain a spike, or there is incoming inventory or a reprint risk um, in play, then the market will correct that action. So if we take, you know, this card went from $8 to 22 if nobody's willing to buy it over 20, then it will slowly be bleed back down towards the other plateau. And if it doesn't make it all the way there, it, it tends to suggest that the limited supply left in the marketplace is um, uh, does not meet the the latent demand. So, you know, somebody said to me on Twitter this week, well, well yeah, but you still ruin the price of the card because, you know, the, the price goes up and now I can't buy it at the price I want. And it's like, <laughs> well, no, you can't have it both ways. Like, if if you are expressing that you actually do want the card, then you are proving the demand thesis to, that led to that card being a spec. The only successful argument you can make down that road is that a do-nothing card that nobody actually wanted was spiked and is now set up at a higher price plateau, which doesn't matter to any of us anyway, because if none of us want it, then who cares what the posted price is? Yeah. Um, it, it's, there are a lot of... This is a, a permanent problem, not just in magic, but in any type of scenario where people are recommending you buy something. Yeah. Um, you know, every magic podcast deals with it. And so does every show that recommends stock market picks. Uh, you know, we we recognize that we try and be transparent about it uh, and we don't delude ourselves into thinking that this was, uh, oh, wow, Travis called it four days before it happened to spike really hard. Like, no, Travis recommended it. Three people heard him said, yeah, sure, I'm in. Uh, and bought the last five copies. It doesn't mean anything until the copies sell. And I don't, neither of us yep. uh, are fooled into thinking anything different. And I don't, I like to think that we have been 100% clear all stages that that's exactly what's happening. And yeah. like, until that market price moves, until copies are selling at the new price, this means nothing. I mean, yeah, we say this every six months or so, but if you're a new user, let me state unequivocally that we don't believe that we quote unquote spike a card. We believe that we point out a card to you that is at very low supply. Some people buy some, we buy some, and there are none left. Then somebody posts it at some extreme price, hoping to test a new plateau. And then the market decides what happens from there. So just keep that in mind when you're planning out your specs and also use that as a as a gauge as to when you should be disappointed. I mean, if you're if we say it's a short term spec and three months later you haven't sold it, then you get the yeah. point fingers. Uh, but please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. I'll take I'll take your fingers. Go ahead. So uh, next, next on our list is a tune with Aether. Uh, this is I, I don't know. Is this the most it's for foils went it's from Kaladesh foils went from two to eight. It's the green one that, like, tutor for a basic can add to energy. I'm guessing this is the most played card in standard. I'm not positive. Uh, but it is, yeah, it is. It's up there. Yeah, it is really, really heavily played. Um, I guess, you know, standard foil commons and uncommons that are single format, like, uh, no thanks. Like, I'm really curious to see if this price will stick at all. Because even though it's really popular, like, how many people are really going to pay that much for a foil copy of this card, especially because it's, you know, it's still got a year left, but it's 
only a year type of thing. So, you know, it would take some of this pressure off of parasitic mechanics as they exit standard. Doesn't fix what they do in standard when they're there, but one of the things that would take pressure off it is if again let's go back to this concept of what modern masters should evolve into we talked about this when modern masters 2017 was was coming out that i believe the future of the 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 master series is to start printing new cards in it i mean understand everybody needs to understand what those sets represent to wizards they get to reprint a bunch of cards pull a, a few extra pieces of art that they either commissioned or already had on file out of the archive and slap them on a few of the cards. And then they're basically just doing reprints. There's the so the design and development stage is much for is much shorter, much less expensive than when they're developing a full set. And they get to put that out at ridiculous margin because the packs are are priced at $10 per pack instead of $4 per pack and even the wholesale prices reflect that difference, right? So but they are running out like they're, they're, if they're going to print two master sets a year, they're not going to be able to get away with just printing reprints. These sets are going to need to start having, I think the right answer is a smattering of new cards, similarly to what they're already doing with the commander products, where it's been very effective. Um, it's been it's been a way to draw people in from other formats to pay attention to those products. And I think if they were to stay start experimenting um, with some of these master sets, including, say, 10 fresh cards, um, that would be well worth a try. Oh, I completely agree. And I remember when they released the master set in the first place, like the very first announcement, I was like, okay, how long before they put new cards in? Like, it's gonna happen. Uh, I can't imagine it won't. And I'll be honest, it's taken longer than I thought it would have. Um, I kind of figured that Wizards would have pulled the trigger on that already, but that is absolutely where they will. I can't fathom them not going this direction with it. And and why wouldn't they, right? Like, it's a perfect vehicle for that type of thing. It gives you, you get to put all sorts of cool cards in the format uh, and not have to worry about what they're going to do to it. So I, I would be just, just so shocked if they don't take advantage of that opportunity. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I never got to the point there, which was that they could introduce additional energy cards for modern and set up a deck there. Ah, which that is actually kind of cool. That is a good point. Because like, energy is uh, the particular mix of energy cards in standard has proven problematic because it sets a very high power bar for the value you're getting from already good cards. Rogue Refiner being a 3-2 for 3 that draws you a card and gives you mana is a lot. That's a lot of value when it hits the table that helps to accelerate your game plan in a way that other decks that don't have can't take advantage of like the quote unquote double mana between energy and and real mana. Um, you know, can't really fully take advantage of it, which narrows the metagame. But when you get into modern, not only is there tons of available decks, but in designing those additional energy cards to give the energy decks enough to work with, you can tweak some knobs and fiddle some with some things to try to set up something that's interesting at tier two, 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 tier two, tier three, but isn't delve broken like Treasure Cruise broken and going to create all sorts of problems. Yes, although, and I, I, that's a really cool concept to sort of like print these cards to expand these strategies a little bit. Um, you know, put like put the the pushed. You know, they could use modern matches to put the to add the one pushed card that they didn't get the print in standard into modern you know like the one energy card that they decided was too good well now they can they can get into modern without ruining standard so that'd be a cool place to do that for like the last two years type of thing like all right here's your one broken allies card your one broken energy card 
um, your broken extort card, that type of thing. So that's a cool way to go about it. The vampire that finally puts vampires in a modern, even if it's tier three. Right. Although, and they, although, and I will say the catch here is that I'm not sure that's that's necessarily healthy for the format, right? Like, do you really want energy being a thing in modern if it's that parasitic? I don't know, but I guess the whole format is essentially parasitic, anyways. I mean, Merfolk is is a parasitic deck, so maybe it's much less of a problem there, I suppose. Well, I mean, decks like Storm and Affinity and so forth are very yeah. like locked into their own mechanics, right? Like Affinity is named after its mechanics, so it's not like it would be alone in, in that arena. And the thing about Modern right now is it, the meta is shifting in such, uh, I think, a productive way. Like the arguments can be made that th- there are many matches in Modern that are essentially goldfishing, and I think that is like the core problem when there's a problem in the format but we have a lot of things like do you remember like not so long ago when in in fact was going to be targeted with bannings uh yeah and and then disappeared off the map completely and then just showed up back up in the top eight and then death shadow looked like it was going to be need a banning and then kind of disappeared off the map and is now kind of like drifted back in once it's made adjustments um i mean we're seeing a lot of decks kind of like ebb and flow and i think that's where you want to be in a in a in an eternal format where people have large collections of cards they want to put them to use they want to be able to kind of fade in and out of decks as as necessary have enough cards on hand to get into two or three different positions as you know needs might be and can still play wacky things that might take people off guard as we're going to talk about in a little bit okay uh all right let's let's move along here (laughs) what have you got next for us Shrine of Burning Rage, the new Phyrexia Foils moving from 250 to 17. That's a pretty big gainer if you had some of those sitting around. Um, every once in a while, uh, Burn needs to have colorless damage to finish things off um, or needs to uh, take advantage of a specific uh, mana curve um, as it plays out the first five turns within which it's trying to win the game. And Shrine of Burning Rage kind of, you know, sometimes makes main deck, sometimes comes out of the sideboard. Um, and you know, as you pointed out before the show, there's only one foil printing in this card. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also really good. It's it's a little less relevant in standard in modern than it is standard because it's much easier to answer. But it's got this feature where it comes down on turn two and you are just staring at this thing, terrified, because every turn it's getting bigger. Every turn it's going to do more damage to you. Every spell, and you're like, I have to draw an answer to this in two or three turns or else I'm just dead to it um, because... Uh, like I can't, I can't counterspell my way out of this. I, it's, you know, it's racing life gain cards. I might be drawing like you, it's, it, it is a ticking time bomb in a way that burn doesn't have. You can't stabilize at one life if they resolve this card. Uh, so it is really effective at putting the pressure on in that way. It, it does seem a little slow for modern in general, but apparently uh, it's still managing. So uh, interesting pickup. And I, I think somebody, I remember somebody picking this card at some point. I don't know who. Uh, and I don't know where, but it wasn't us. I looked for the sheet, got all prepared to be excited for us, but no luck. <laughs> um, nope, yeah, but so. people have talked about it. So next on the list, we had Early Frost from Fifth Dawn. Uh, this is a storm sideboard option. Uh, occasionally moving the foils moving from 50 cents to $5. All this thing does is tap three lands at instant speed, but you could do this, um, you know, heading into an opponent's turn um, in their uh, upkeeper draw step and hopefully catch them off guard and off guard and give yourself the breathing room you need to go off 
Uh, yeah, I, that's it is an interesting piece of tech. I do remember seeing this before I played it in. I don't remember what deck it was that I had that I played it in, but it was it is a nifty little piece of tech, and uh, I'm not surprised to see it showing up and getting a little bit of play. Uh, so, and I'm I'm assuming Fifth Dawn's the only printing. Yes, well, yes, at least the only foil print. I think I think it is the only printing. Yeah, I mean the occasional sideboard usage in Storm isn't enough usually to spike a, a foil common. So I'm going to guess that these foils are pretty old and. Uh, the only time it was printed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's finish off this week with uh, Cauldron, uh, better known as the best magic card um, This might have the most text on it of any magic card. I think it does. Uh, jumped from 50 cents to $5. I mean, for whatever that happens to mean, uh, which is probably not a lot. Uh, part of that whole antiquities, whatever, buyout type of thing. So nothing too terribly exciting. Yeah, reserve list. Everybody, whoever's ticking those boxes has ticked another one. Moving on. Okay, so let's jump into. We're going to skip ahead to the metagame we can review because I want to use uh, this first place deck as uh, a case study in how to evaluate specs. So, uh, in case you didn't hear, uh, we had a pretty diverse top eight at the SCG Modern Open in Cincinnati, which was the second SCG Modern Open in two weeks. So, pretty good peek in on the metagame across the nation. Um, in, from second place to eighth, you had uh, Blue Red Gift Storm, Counters Company. Um, that's the one built around Vizier Remedies combo um, with Devoted Druid. Uh, Blue Green Merfolk making that back to back top eight. Infect showing up after a, a, a drought. Um, Affinity in sixth place, Black White Eldrazi Taxes, and then the Lower Slung Death in Taxes. Um, that one was running two copies of Smuggler's Copter. It's a spicy little inclusion there. Um, but the deck I really want to talk about was the first place deck in the hands of Collins Mullen, which took everybody off guard. Um, this was, I've seen like people theorizing around a deck like this for a couple of years now and have recommended some of the included cards at various points on the basis that humans might get there. But it was the appearance of a couple of new cards in uh, Ixalan that really put this over the top. So this is a five color humans brew. And it includes, I'm going to read the whole list because this is a pretty awesome list and a great way of uh, discussing some spec potential. Four Champion of the Parish, four Kite Sail Freebooter, so that's the one of the excellent cards. Four Mantis Rider from Khan's Block, uh, happens to be a human, not a Mantis. Three Mayor of Aberbrook, uh, four Meddling Mage, four Noble Hierarch, three Reflector Mage, four Thalia's Lieutenant, uh, four Thalia Garden, Guardian of Thraben, two Thalia Heretic Cathar, and then in the lands of interest, uh, well, there's four, four, first of all, there's four Aethervile, and then in the lands, four Ancient Ziggurat. If you're not familiar, this is the land that makes any color, but only if you're playing creature spells. Four Cavern of Souls, we all know what that one does. And then four Unclaimed Territory, which is the new Ixalan Uncommon Land, which gives you land of any color if it's for a specific creature type. So between Ziggurat, Cavern of Souls, and Unclaimed Territory, you have 12 five-color lands with essentially no penalty. Yes, this is a really cool strategy. Uh, it's reminiscent of something Sam Black was writing about um, a couple of years ago now. I think it was when... Oh, that one card, uh, Mana Confluence came out and it's like, hey, there's now 25 color lands for tribal decks in modern. Uh, you know, this is worth thinking about. Um, and it is, it's, it's a very cool uh, 
build and it opens up a lot of choices. So I, I'm I'm excited about this for what it means for other formats uh, or other tribes, um, because now you can have not just humans, but slivers or um, goblins and vampires, some of these other strategies uh, that might have wanted to expand out to a couple other colors now have the option to do that. Uh, so this, I think this is a tip of the iceberg on these five color tribal decks. Yeah, so I mean, this deck's cool because it's it's fast, it's efficient, it's synergistically aggro, it's got some solid disruption built in, um, and uh, it's got some, some of that disruption is kind of like laser targeted at decks like Storm that are doing really well in the format right now, um, where both Thalia's, Thalia Guardian of Thraben um, taxes their spells, and Thalia Heretic Athar, you know, makes their lands come into play tapped and makes all those goblin tokens come into play tapped. Um, Kite Sail Freebooter helps takes, take important spells out of people's hand early and then gets bumped up by Thalia's Lieutenant when it comes into play. Um, you've got Reflector Mage um, bouncing things back to people's hand and not letting them play it again right away. Meddling Mage stopping them from playing it at all. And if you've had a look at their hand with Freebooter um, or put something back with Reflector Mage, then um, Meddling Mage can help keep it there. Um, you know, Mantis Rider puts on some good pressure in the air. And... You know, Ether Vial makes sure that counter spells don't really matter much. Yeah, it it's got so many cool tools, and the other aspect of this is you can turn the you can tool this to be any different meta, right? So you can play the Thalias in the main against a storm heavy field, and then you can swap to like Magus of the Moons in the main if you have to deal with. Uh, like a Jund or Abzan heavy format, that type of thing. Humans are a very well-supported tribe in modern. You get more every year, uh, every set. So there's a lot of cool variants in this variant variant (laughs) available for this strategy as the meta calls for it. Um, And I hope we see more of it. I mean, I'm not sure you really want to be running a Blood Moon effect in this deck, given like all the non-basic lands you have that are kind of crucial to casting your spells. But if your Ether Vial comes down, um, you know, and and it's that important to lock them out, then you know maybe you can keep that hand. I don't know. Well, that, it, there's a bunch of other. That, that's the idea. Is like you either you Vial turn one, hopefully, and or you just go one, two, three drop, and your third drop is Magus of the Moon, and hopefully your opponent hasn't done anything good enough before that. And they, if they can't cast a spell for the rest of the game, uh, your guys on the ground help. So you know it's not going to work if your opponent goes goif goif. But uh, yeah, there can be times where Blood Mooning with a deck full of non basics is correct. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I certainly agree with your point that humans being such a broad tribe that is constantly in print and gets new, new like, members of the tribe all the time um, bodes very well for this deck long term. It's going to be such a flexible deck. I mean, just look at the sideboard. Two Aether Sworn Canonist in the sideboard. Human Cleric, that helps lock down Storm. Two Fiend Hunter, that's just a general purpose, you know, get a creature off the board. Two Is It Static Caster to clear away the little things. Amir and Crusader against green-black decks, good against Death Shadow and, and Abzan and Jun builds. A Reflector Mage in addition to the uh, three that are already in the main. Two Tireless Tracker, which is a onesie-twosie that pops up constantly in Modern now. Um, two Vithian Renegades. Owe you guys a drink if you can tell me what that card does. It's a 3-2-1 red-green. Comes into play, destroys an artifact. Happens to be Human Shaman. Two, uh, Zathrid Necromancer, which is a card many people specced on and didn't get anywhere with, uh, in M14. This was the 2-2 two, two for three human wizard. If another, if 
Necromancer or another human creature you control dies, you get a 2-2 zombie to replace it. So a good grindy card. And then Anaphens at the foremost helps uh, keep things out of graveyards when you don't want them there. Um, all sorts of interesting stuff going on here. So I really like this deck as this case study um, that we were talking about for, you know, how do you, looking at a deck like this, that isn't just a minor tweak on something else, but it's kind of like a whole new entity unto itself that has cards that are elements from other decks and has some fairly unique cards that haven't really made it to the big show yet. How do we go about, you know, figuring out which of the several options in here would be the best specs? So let's talk about a few of these cards. Um, we've got Cavern of Souls and Ethervile, which are played in a variety of different decks, have been in demand for quite some time, um, have posted up in multiple formats, but have also seen, you know, a recent reprint for Cavern of Souls in, in, in uh, Modern Masters 2017, and Ethervile uh, is being reprinted in Iconic Masters and just got a Masterpiece re- reprint last year. So, I mean, these are cards that are already expensive and could gain some ground over time. Um, you also have some cards like Mantis Rider, which are three-color uh, humans that are extremely unlikely to show up in any other deck in the format. Um, those don't seem like my top priorities. Would you agree? Yeah, stuff like Mantis Rider, which is basically unplayable except in this exact deck and you know was really good this weekend but may not always be because it doesn't have utility it's just efficient um they're definitely not ideal uh and you know cards that are super infran like super established like aether vial and cavern are can be interesting like to kind of double dip on them but it's hard to know for sure and you kind of have to, like time it right and wizards having been pretty aggressive with the reprints the last couple of years makes me a little scared for those as well um so I, I'm personally looking for the new gems, the stuff that you didn't already know about type of thing, um, or that has no play before this, uh, and preferably uh, cards that otherwise may have been underlooked, overlooked, not really played as much as they could be, and uh, stand to gain a lot from this type of environment. So, like, for instance, I, I wrote about... Um, ancient ziggurat in my article on monday sure so i mean i think like to encapsulate some of the principles we kind of carry forward all the time we you want relatively low reprint risk you want relatively few printings you want relatively low inventory you want um the deck to keep rolling you want uh you probably want to look at foils before you look at non-foils of a lot of these cards like non-foil mantis rider is not going anywhere no matter what happens with the foils that inventory is just far too deep to attack but the foils are actually have already been like targeted so i mean whether or not you believe that's the right pick from this week other people have already had that thought um you guys talked about mayor of averbrook on cartel this week where you were discussing that it has like a promo printing that has held back the pack foils um, it's probably also going to show up in FTV Flip, right? Um, so it's got imminent reprint risk. Could, could. we have? I, I find it hard to believe it won't because there's just not that many options. Um, but it certainly has. It, it probably has the most imminent risk. We have Noble Hierarch, which was just is a great card that's constantly in demand and played in multiple decks and in Modern and Legacy. But it just got announced that it's going to be an RPTQ. Uh, promo for the year so that's going to put some pressure on the foils for sure and the non-foils are not in particularly short supply because um, uh, it's had a couple of printings already well that um, can i just pause that art is really rough right 
I, I hate it. I, I, I made note of anybody who said they liked it that I can't trust their judgment <laughs> on, on art moving forward. I mean, it, it looks like like bad first year college fantasy art. Uh, I'm not a fan of that artist. I didn't like their um, uh, honored hierarch version from I think it was Origins. I think it's almost certain it's the same artist. Didn't like that card either. Don't like this one. Um, the original art is if you get if you people get their hands on bigger versions of those two images and compare the original to this one i don't think they're, they're gonna still feel the same way um that this one is better it's clearly the first one is a higher quality uh piece of art um so we also have you know ancient ziggurat is a card i looked at when i was considering you know what i would target in this deck my concern there was that it's had a couple of printings as well it was an fnm foil promo um, and uh, was printed in the <clears throat> foil slivers deck at one point. So it's got a, three different foils, none of which are particularly low demand. So if this deck gets super popular, or people start bringing other tribes to the table because they realize this, you know, uh, twelve card mana base is portable, then I think that that card can definitely get some pressure. Um, but I'm most interested in. The card I picked out here that was a four of in this deck, four of in multiple other decks in modern, um, hasn't seen a, a printing lately, and whose foils are in the short supply. And that card is Thalia, Garden, Guardian of Thraben, <laughs> um, who has had a promo. It was an RPTQ or a GP? Was it a GP promo? Mm, oh boy, I think it was RPTQ because I don't think there are enough copies for the GP for it to be a GP. But maybe I'm wrong. Whatever the promo was, they're being burned through, and the pack foils from Dark Ascension are being are relatively low supply already. And this is a card that um, is sitting in at around 15 for the foils right now. I think it can easily hit 30 within the year. The only thing to keep in mind is that this card hasn't been printed for a while outside of the promo and could easily see a reprint in uh, the 25th anniversary edition. I think it would be a, a pretty solid fit there. Um, you can argue that the format needs it. and um, But if you are willing to take the risk and you dodge that reprint, um, I think that if you have 6 to 12 months before this card shows up again, then you're going to make some money. Yeah, so one of the reasons I didn't talk about Thalia is because I had written about Thalia like not really that long ago, and I wanted to go with something different. <laughs> uh, but I agree, Thalia is a really interesting card uh, out of that deck. Definitely probably the highest power level, the most applicable elsewhere, um, and, and in general, just a good card. I love that promo too, and I, I, the more I think about it, I think it might be a GP promo, but it's so distinct and so unlike anything else we see. Uh, that's, that really catches my attention. Yeah, the thing about that promo is they're already going for something like, uh, I want to say $40 in the US, 40 to 45 There are very few left on TCG Player. Um, it was a WMCQ promo, oh, that's what it was. Uh, for the record. Yeah, but there are very, very few of those sitting around in North America. I think it's going to post up to 60 and we can get those in Europe right now for 30 Jeez. bucks. Um, and that's with conversion and everything. So I have a feeling picking up like say eight or 12 copies of that over in Europe in the next couple of days is going to be uh, a profitable endeavor because I don't, even if it gets a reprint in 25th, it might just be the same art that the original had um, because they've already done new art for her once. I think it's unlikely they would prioritize new art again, like three different art pieces of art on the same card doesn't seem all that likely. Um, 
And as you said, the WMCQ art is some of the best magic art, I think, in the last five years. Um, really good looking piece. Looks great when you play it on, on table because it's a close up of her face. So some art is like really fantastic. Like, for instance, the art on many of the invocations is fantastic. But because of the framing and how small those images ended up, um, no one's really ever going to fully appreciate it. Whereas this one is a very a tight shot in her face holding her sword and it looks just incredible. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a solid pick. I also like unclaimed territory foils out of Ixalan, which are still sitting around at five bucks. It's only an uncommon, but in the same way that Ancient Ziggurat has a chance to take off, um, unclaimed fo- territory would get dragged up right beside it. Um, Cavern of Souls is already expensive, but could gain, you know, 10, 15, $20 on a lot of additional modern play because it already shows up in Merfolk and and occasionally in other like rogue decks that may become less rogue as people start to uh, adapt the portable mana base again. So, uh, deck super cool. Uh, Thalia and Unclaimed Territory are my picks uh, out of it. Uh, anything else to wrap that up? Uh, well, yeah, I have a question. Are you ever concerned that a deck has too many picks? Like... This is has so many cards that are interesting, right? Like, you're like, wow, I could see this moving, I could see this moving. Because there's no focal point, there's no like choke point for the money to go. Um, it, you know, you could end up with it sort of spread around uh, because it can't kind of. There's no one card to focus on. Um, do you, does that ever kind of sway you away from buying the cards? That's definitely a factor that we all need to consider because, for instance, I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking about Thalia and Unclaimed Territory. You're talking about Ancient Ziggurat. Somebody else already went off after Mantis Rider. Um, can all of those cards hold? Well, only if the deck becomes popular. If this is a one-off first-place deck that we don't see in a top eight for the rest of the year, then the cards in play here that aren't played anywhere else aren't going to go anywhere, which is why if I have to choose between Thalia, which is already played in Black in Death and Taxes and Eldrazi Death and Taxes um, as a four of and sees play in Legacy versus a card like Mantis Rider, um, definitely pick the one that's got overlapping play in other format, yeah. in other decks, meadows and formats, et cetera. For sure, for sure. Okay, yeah, because I, I occasionally have that thought. I'm like, boy, there's just, there's a few too many cards here. Like, I'm concerned about what, like, just not going to be uh, a clear choice. Well, and one of the other things that comes into play is that, let's say, for instance, you know, Death and Taxes was a deck in Modern for Ages. When Eldrazi Death and Taxes appeared on the scene, if you already had the cards for Death and Taxes, you could transition to that deck fairly easily. So to get you to pick up, say, Foil Thought Not Seers or Reality Smashers or something um, isn't that crazy, um, or Wasteland Stranglers or what have you. But for a deck like this, where some of the everybody has some of these cards, like most people that play Modern probably have Noble Hierarchs, they probably have... Um, Thalias, etc. But they may and they may have Cavern of Souls, but they probably don't necessarily have Mantis Riders put aside or Champions of the Parish. Um, you, you have to have a bunch of people that are interested in modern, have modern decks, but don't like them enough or aren't committed to them enough, either financially or or psychologically, that they're willing to take a chance on humans and try to rock it. Now, for instance, I'm the kind of player that saw this deck and said, "Oh, I'm going to drop my Death and Taxes deck." <laughs> For sure, just leave it on the shelf and try out humans at the next time I go to play modern. And I think there are other people like that that are more concerned with, you know, having something new and fun than they are about winning. Um, but on the competitive scene where like a lot of the price uh, shifts get driven from, 
Um, you know, decks like this typically have to show up multiple times before anybody takes them seriously. And I mean, just look at our, the discussion we've had about Merfolk and the number of times we've heard people make disparaging comments about that deck, despite the fact that it has put up many top eights over the last two or three years. Um, so, I mean, humans just has the one win so far. Let's see what happens from here on out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Very cool deck. Hoping that we see more out of it. Uh, some interesting potential in there. All right. So tell me about your picks for this week. Okay. Well, we'll do things a little differently this week. I'll give, get us started. Uh, I'm going to go with Warren Powerstone. Uh, originally from Urza Saga has like six printings now. Uh, I'm looking at the Foil Eternals, Eternal Masters copies, uh, currently in and around three-ish dollars. Um, again, like six printings to this card, maybe more. This is the very first foil printing of Worn Power Stone. It is in 19,000 EDH decks, and it's colorless. It goes in all of them, yep. Uh, it is not in Iconic Masters, which means it already dodged that reprint. Um, the only problem left for this card is, uh, masters 25. You know, if we see it show up in masters 25, then, uh, oh, well, like you, you, it, it too bad. I guess you lost it there. Uh, but if it dodges that, uh, you know, we're talking tier one artifact staple and EDH monorock with a single foil printing. You can look at any of the other cards sort of in that tier, whether it's Gilded Lotus, um, forget Soul Ring, look at Gilded Lotus, Thran Dynamo, uh, all those types of cards. There's so there's definitely solid demand for these types of cards. So at $3 and change, supply is relatively deep, uh, but that will change for sure over the next year without a reprint. Uh, I think that's a good pick. The only thing holding it back right now is that you've got to go pretty deep if you want to move the needle because the inventory is still relatively robust. Um, probably not the kind of thing that a lot of people have been targeting out of Eternal Masters. Um, I suspect that the 19,000 decks are are people that don't have the full complement of uh, higher power mana rocks because I, I can see a lot of my decks this not making the cut just because there's other better options. Um but if you're, you know, you don't happen to have a mana crypt lying around, then this easily makes the cut um, in a lot of those decks. And you know, the demand profile is real. Nineteen thousand decks is nothing to sneeze at on EDH rec. Um, and like you said, single printing. So I mean, give this enough time, it's it's probably got some motion. I mean, I think this could end up being what like a eight to ten dollar buy list that you get in on at four or something. That's solid. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know all of our picks don't have to be, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound disparaging, but, you know, I like to occasionally target cards that aren't necessarily going to turn around uh, in the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes type of thing. You know, yeah. it's nice to have some stuff stashed away that will build over time. And that's exactly what I think this is. Um, it, you know, you can you can put them, pick them up as you place orders where you find them cheap and kind of forget about them. And then, uh, you know, in a year or two, whatever, you go back and look at your inventory and go, oh, that was a nice little surprise there. Yeah. And certainly if, you know, you're interested in one of these for yourself, I mean, I should be holding back. There's a copy at 274 shipping included on, on TCG. I mean, just buy it already. Yeah. Um, okay. By the way, have you, have you looked at the art for Temple of the False God from Commander 2017? Um, I'm trying to remember and failing. Now that's some art. <laughs> okay. That is a good looking card. You can invest in magic art. Ugh. I haven't actually dipped in that yet. And I suspect that the boat has largely shipped, largely sailed. And I think that networking um, is a big piece of that. And uh, 
definitely don't know the right people to get pretty deep there. Although I did start looking at uh, investing in extremely expensive sneakers. Oh yeah, there's the, they've got that. I mean, I remember seeing a TED talk a while ago about that, and some guy built a website for it. And I remember looking at it and being shocked at how much better his platform for fancy sneakers was than every other magic website I had ever seen. <laughs> yeah, because they th- th- those guys are straight up in the fashion industry, so their UI UX has to be dialed. The um, I was fawning over thousand dollar running shoes over on the Buscemi website. Um, if you guys are at all interested in uh, sneaker finance, take a look at that. <laughs> that place, thousand dollar running shoes, huh? They basically targeted like the people that want to have like a Birkin bag on their feet. Um, in fact, like the look and feel of some of those shoes is directly lifted from women's handbags in the fashion industry. So it's pretty fascinating. Uh, yeah, that that is quite a market. I will say that quite a an industry. But okay, what uh, what is your first pick? Let's talk about those uh, the promos that were unveiled today. We have the GP promo being a very sweet looking Mutavault. Um, I think most people will agree that they're going to want four of those. Uh, yeah, that is a really cool. If you want a Mutavault, you are going to be. I mean, it's like champs, and then this one, right? Like you can't really do better. <laughs> yeah, and we're going from Progenitus to Mutavault. <laughs> so. I mean, at best, you want one progenitus, probably. Um, but Mutavol, especially, um, given what we just saw with five-color humans, this and how much tribal um, action there's been this year and is likely to be in the future, Mutavol is just a, a perennial staple that you're going to want to have in your collection. Um, this one looks really great. You're going to end up getting these in the 10 to $20 range, I think, when they hit the ground. Um, and it'll... It'll spike early and then fade as more enter the market, and um, I'm certainly going to pick up a playset. Yeah, give it you know give it a couple of years, and this is not going to be a uh, a cheap GP promo anymore. It's really cool art, very playable. Uh, even if it gets several reprintings, it will still probably look pretty good. So um, that's a cool card. We already touched on this earlier, but I don't think either of us likes this Noble Hierarch promo, which is for RPTQs. Um, if I understand it correctly, um, I don't like the art. I have no interest in this. There are, um, better foils sitting around at a reasonable price. And, uh, that's all I got to say on that. Okay. Uh, so before we cap, uh, jump into the next topic, uh, we'll cap the GP promos. I, I just realized I forgot to give you guys my, my, uh, final pick of the week. So, uh, several weeks back, I said, you should be picking up uh, Russian foil F and M promo fatal pushes for 30 bucks a piece. Those are still available in the market and those are still a slam dunk pickup. But I realized that even just the regular F and M uh, foil promos, the English versions that are floating around uh, in North America are also drying up and you can still get them in the like 10 to $12 range. I think those are also a slam dunk that is going to, in the same way that I think the Russian foils are going to be like 60 to 80 um, eventually these are going to be 25 to 30 for sure. I th- and I think within a year or two, Fatal Push is going to be like uh, Path to Exile. It's going to get reprinted numerous times over the years. But the FNM foils are not going to get reprinted um, ever, probably. And um, so that art will be unique, and those are going to be in high demand. Yeah, they seem to kind of like keeping their FNM artwork mostly alone, right? Like... Um like not using it that much. I feel like you don't see reprinted FNM art all that often. I could be wrong. I can't think of, I, I can't think of an instance where FNM art's been reused. Yeah. It's not often. Um, so, and even if that has happened, it would be the exception that proves the rule, not the other way around. Um, 
And I, I think the reality is that the Fatal Push art was good. The promo art's even better. It's more dynamic, and I think it's just higher quality. Um, and, you know, it's one of the most important kill spells ever printed in the entire game in all 25 years of it. Um, and the foils, original pack foil, plus this FNM promo, I think, I think are going to be where you want to be at. There will be some other Fatal Push promo, but it's probably two, three, four years out. Um, you know, they're, they're going to go back to that well, but these are going to get a, a solid shot at a pre- price appreciation. There is a lot of hoarding going on. One of the vendors in Russia told me he sold a hundred of the Russian foils. And if that scares you in terms of how much inventory there is, I, I wouldn't be scared. There, I've done the research. There are very few FNMs in Russia, like less than a few dozen. And on that basis alone, even if that guy had a hundred shipped from his rep, like he can't get another thousand. Like whatever he got in his allotment is what he's got. Whatever he collects from players is what he's got. And once those guys run out and I buy Russian foils on a semi-regular basis, I don't see them restock six months later. Like you, you get a window of opportunity on this stuff from Russia and then it just is gone and they're moved on to the next thing. Yeah. I didn't mean how would they restock, right? Like it's not like we can do that. Also a couple dozen FNMs across all of Russia. Really? Yep. I mean, the, the country is huge, but the population is not that big. And the, the real story is that they just don't have enough people with high income, mm-hmm. right? Like Magic's an expensive game. When I went to a Magic store in Bulgaria, it was a ghost town. I mean, it existed, but it was like the equivalent of like a high-end pen store mm-hmm. in your you know downtown core. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like some upper middle class kids play the game here and there occasionally. They certainly weren't packing it in with 100 people at the FNM. Okay, geez. All right. I didn't realize it was uh, that infrequent. Um, okay, so let me toss my last one out here. Uh, in a similar vein uh, as to Warren Powerstone, I'm looking at uh, Blind Obedience. This is the two mana enchantment uh, that puts all your opponent's stuff into play. Tapped also has uh, an extort trigger on it. This is uh, foils currently available, available in and around $4, uh, but and st- supply is like close and gone, right? There's very little out there. I think there are currently 10 TCG vendors at the moment that have um, foil blind obediences in stock. And it's in 12,000 EDH decks. Like I never would have guessed that blind obedience was that popular. I did not know but that. But doing a little digging, that's what it says. And it's like, nope. geez, all right, 12,000 decks. There's 10 vendors on TCG with foil copies. It's going to be tough to reprint with that extort trigger. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I don't have any copies yet, but I will. Yeah, that's, I mean, it seems solid to me if 11,000 decks are running it. And it's being run in a whole bin- bunch of different kinds of decks. It's in Aloro, it's in Queen, Queen Marquesa, it's in Karlov of the Ghost Council, it's in Daxos the Returned, Saskia the Unyielding, Kambal, Console of Allocation, uh, Eilie, Eternal Pilgrim. Boy, that's a lot of names to remember how to say. Um, th- those are a, a, a pretty um, diverse uh, set of commanders and... If it's useful in all of those decks that happen to be white, it's probably going to be useful in more in the future. And I agree that the extort trigger prevents it from seeing a imminent reprint. Um, yeah, solid pick. I think I, I will say that uh, as an EDH player, I remember my friend plopping down one of these. It was just sort of there. He wasn't really thinking much of it. Uh, and then we had to play against it, and I was like, this is miserable. <laughs> like, it was did so much more than I would have expected it to. Um, yeah, it's a cool card. Uh, very powerful. And, it, and it's just been reprinted in... It was in Commander 2016 and 2017. But again, we were, we're back to this thing where ETH foils are where it's at. 
if you want to target EDH at all, because yeah, it's got three printings, but only one of them was in foil, and that was the earliest one. Yeah. Yep. So, so how deep is the foil inventory though? Let's take a look at that. There were ten vendors, and I think there were fourteen copies, fifteen copies total. Yeah, that's a slam dunk. You just buy all of those and don't look back. <laughs> well, all right. So, Cryptgast. This is this week's Cryptgast. I mean, does it get does it get better than there's ten copies left? It just got reprinted, but not in foil. And there's <laughs> and it's and it's and there's demand in a foil format yeah. in excess of fifteen thousand decks. Yeah, you guys are welcome. You're all welcome. There you go. Good uh, work. Okay, so other topics this week that we wanted to cover. <laughs> so, so we'll go go from good advice to a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, that's but, my life story. My let, life. Let, let's go ahead and let me float this this silly idea um, and get people talking. Um, the question I posed to Travis before the cast was: Could pros crowdfund their participation in in the grind? Um, uh, the pro tour grind. So the premise here is that you would do some kind of like Patreon or Kickstarter type thing. You would say collect 10, probably 10,000 or 15,000 is probably the max that would make any amount of sense. So you got a guy like a Reed Duke and Reed Duke says, you guys give me 10,000 upfront, which gives me some security for the year and covers some travel expenses and stuff and lets me really go at it and grind away. And I'm going to play, try to spike as many local tournaments as I can, my schedule will afford. I'm going to hit all the GPs I can hit. I'm going to do all my usual action on the pro tour. And my average revenue for the last five years was whatever, $18,000. It was 7500 It was 22006 over the last five years. I am a consistently good Magic player that would like a little more security in my life. And in exchange, I'm willing to give up some percentage of my winnings beyond what you funded and return your money, but only if I'm successful. So you could lose all your money, but let's say that you put in a, a thousand for argument's sake. At the end of the year, the plan is that you get, if I win that much, and I'm going to record all of that and track it somewhere for everybody, um, I'm going to promise... 30 cents on your dollar. So I'm going to give back 13. The first 13,000 I make goes back to the people that ponied up the 10 up front and you get a 30% return on your money and you get, you know, access to me in some way. There's probably all sorts of other perks. Like you get to see my deck lists. Um, you get to ask, you know, get a deck clinic once a year or something. Who knows? Like yeah, a bunch of little, you know, knobs you can twiddle to make it more or less attractive for people. Um, and, you know, it would get people more excited about supporting the pros um, that they like the most, um, gives those guys a little bit more security in their lives, perhaps, and they don't have to give up too much. Um, you know, they're basically like borrowing against their potential future paychecks with zero to the only risk, real risk being that people are disappointed in them and don't invest in them the next year. Right. Um, you know, for our listeners who aren't aware, this is actually a really common um, thing in professional poker. Um, you'll see players sell stakes in themselves ahead of uh, the world uh, YSOP and major poker events, that type of thing, where, um, you know, they say, okay, you know, for, for 10 grand, I will give you, uh, you know, 5% or something of my, of my, my stake. So what that means is, you know, you pay them $5,000 up front and no matter what happens, they have that five grand. And then if they win $500,000, you get 5% of that, you know, however much percentage you got for your, your payment. So this is a standard thing. It's a really cool concept. Um, one that I haven't really heard discussed anywhere else. The, what I, what concerns me about it is that you have, 
uh, in poker, it works because the numbers are so big. Um, you know, if you have 5% of a guy and he wins $500,000, you're doing pretty good. Uh, in magic, like how much can you actually win? Right. Like the, the numbers are low enough that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Like it's not worth the amount of time and effort and money that's going to go into it. Uh, and there's not that many players that you'd be wanting to put that much money into anyways, because I mean, who are you gonna, how many players are you going to want to spend, put that money into like, 10 15 maybe right like how many players are that good that you're willing to essentially fund them for a cut of their uh their winnings so that's a that's another challenge there but what i think both of these speak to is uh ultimately that it's not a problem of the players it's not a problem of the amount of um so much that the magic stakes are low it's that magic stakes are low because magic just isn't worth enough. There's not enough money in professional magic to make uh, endeavor like this worth it. And it, it's not, it has nothing to do with the problem of the system or the players or anything like that. It's just like magic doesn't pay enough. Uh, and, you know, really it's not worth Reed Duke's time to be playing this game. He does it because he loves it. Professional poker has some really good returns and that's why that's a little more, more worth it. Well, I mean, I would I would argue that the returns with a poker player are outsized in the sense that you're it's more like you're participating in a charity raffle, right? Like you're almost certainly not going to win. You're putting your money in on the on the basis with a poker player that that there's a way outside shot you get a bunch of money. Whereas with this magic scenario, it only really works. Like I agree that it's, there's a limited number of players that can try it, but I think they could try it because I think that like for instance, Reed Duke has such a great reputation. That he'd be putting it on the line. So for him, it's a little sketchy. Um, and he may feel like he doesn't need it. But, um, you know, a guy like Todd Stevens, who quit his job and is now a full-time professional Magic player, but not focused on the Pro Tour. He's focused on the focused on the SEG Tour, where he's, like, killing it this year. Um, you know, this could have given him a little bit more security, a little bit more peace of mind. And he still got a solid enough reputation that I think that that would be subscribed to. Like, I think that... If he could show me a few years of results, and I wouldn't do this for everybody, but I would certainly do it for Todd. I would do it for Reed. I would do it for William Jensen. I mean, there, I can name probably 10 or 20 Magic players I'd be willing to do this for um, that are out there grinding and are of a high enough skill level and have demonstrated performance over time. Um, I'd be in for 200, 100 bucks, 250 bucks with like a 30, a 20, 30, 40% return. Um, you know, it's not going to make or break my year. It's not going to be a big deal one way or the other, but it would be a, a, a cute little thing to try. Um, and if it worked out, then I, you know, that guy would be subscribed for ages until he, until the wheels fell off the cart. Well, it would definitely make, uh, it would definitely give you a personal stake in the game in a way that you don't have elsewhere, which would be really interesting. So, um, you know, our group, uh, sometimes does pro tour dinners where we all draft the pro tour, you know, you draft players ahead of the pro tour. And this is not like uncommon, right? Lots of people do this. You draft players ahead of a pro tour. Um, and then you all pitch in something. So, you know, we would do, uh, we're going to go out to dinner afterwards and whoever, uh, the, the bill is split based on your placement in the, the draft. Um, you know, you, and then you, you watch how players perform over the course of the event and whoever's team gets the most pro points wins and that type of thing. Uh, when I'm invested in those, when I have like essentially, uh, a reason to care about who wins, it's a, 
way more exciting event than it would be otherwise. And, you know, we get like, I find myself, the only time I've ever shouted at the Pro Tour was, or I think two times I've ever shot at the Pro Tour. One, when I was watching my friend win it live. And two is when every time I have uh, a reason for players to win matches. So being, and my point being is if you're putting a stake in players like this, uh, then suddenly you really care about how he's performing at Star City events. And that's kind of cool, right? Like we haven't really seen that you know you, you don't you probably don't care that much that that level of passion about winners and losers in star city doesn't exist for a lot of people because they don't have a reason to but this would give them that reason which is a cool concept well i mean the flip side of that is that it's a potential pr disaster that wizards might choose to write up into the pro tour like attendance contract that says if you're participating in the pro tour um, you can lose your invite if you participate in anything like this because the last thing they want is some Reddit thread going off on a player who didn't who failed to perform and is just getting torn to shreds and people are calling it a scam and whatever. They 0% want that. <laughs> and yet, it's undeniable that there is a lack of security in the pursuit of being a pro tour magic player when compared to things like um, high-level esports. Um, and if they want to play in that arena, they've either got to put more money into the pool, um, which for even though I personally believe that, that that's not really the direction we're headed, um, or they've got they they would at least you know need to consider allowing this kind of thing go on thing to go on at least as an experiment and see what happened. Um, one of the other point things I would point out is that this this wouldn't be the first time this kind of action's been taken. Um, at least from another dimension. I mean, pro players themselves have been taking pieces of each other's action for years. I've heard many, many stories um, over the years of pro players taking a percentage of each other's winnings to try to even out the variance of their grind. Yeah, for sure. And first of all, some of this may be happening on the download that we're simply unaware of, right? Like entirely possible that this is occurring just sort of in other channels and and we haven't heard about it. although it does seem unlikely that this would be happening in any meaningful capacity and both you and i would be completely unaware that it is happening um well i mean the pros do a lot of things that they keep close to their chest so it wouldn't surprise me that much that if there was you know the action i just described you know like if if reed and owen and huey have a deal where they take 10 percent of each other's action there's no reason for them to publicize that well and it and it helps even out there correct i 100 percent agree with that but i guess i would consider that that's you know again th- that's the peach garden oath splitting 10 or 20 percent it's you know sperling and martell type of thing um as opposed to like offering it to outside sources uh that is what yeah oh yeah for sure is. That was a total, totally different thing. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was our little random thought for the week. Talks amongst yourselves. Let us know what you think. Um, uh, think we're think we're yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, works for me. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDGPrice.com. Um, I did just wrap up my uh, buy list scenario with Card Kingdom. I scored a ninety-eight percent on that order. So I was expecting, I think, 2850 and got just under 2800 from those guys um, in store credit. And I have already put on hold a beta near mint tundra, which is kind of more SP um, than it is near mint. But it looks like a very successful trade up. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.
And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, you can find me my articles every Monday on MTG Price. I also show up on Cartel Aristocrats webcast. And if you enjoy playing magic, check out scry.land, find magic in your area. Recently improved data sources over more than double the number of PPTQs in our database. So if you couldn't find yours before, you probably will now. Also, I have no goddamn idea what Wizards is doing with their event locator. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. thank Wizards for it. <laughs> I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed our podcast this week, James. Uh, A lot of great information, and I look forward to joining you next week. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.